Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. I don't know how your mind works, but maybe I'm not the only person in this room with several short reels of film stacked in a corner of his head that contain some of the most unfortunate things he's ever said. The surly guy who runs the projector in there likes to spool one up when I'm feeling especially anxious or insecure. Maybe he means well. Maybe he's intending to say, yes, what just happened was an embarrassing catastrophe, and it does confirm, at least to the person you were talking to, that you really are the worst human being presently alive. But it could be worse. Remember when you said this, and then he rolls one. Whatever he intends, it's not helpful in the moment. And not that I'm fishing for sympathy here. But if you happen to be a preacher, it's actually possible to say the wrong thing, not just to your neighbor with the obnoxious cat, but to a whole church full of people at once. Still, imagine that you're arguably the most influential person in human history thus far. You're this itinerant rabbi who healed people and spoke wisdom that 2,000 years later, even though you lived much closer to a place called Memphis, Egypt, A bunch of people in a place called Memphis, Tennessee would actually sit somewhat attentively while a preacher tries to untangle something you said. Are you with me? Imagine you're that guy. Wait a minute, is asking a room full of Memphians to imagine that they're Jesus Christ actually the worst thing I've ever said? (laughs) Go with it anyway. Go ahead and imagine that you're Jesus, and the worst thing you ever said It's captured in the 15th chapter of the gospel according to somebody named Matthew. Hopefully this makes you and me feel a little better about the briefer shelf life for the faux pas we commit. A Canaanite woman whose daughter has a demon comes to Jesus pleading for mercy. First, he says nothing to her at all. Then he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he says, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. What in the world are Christians to do with the Jesus of Matthew 15? The first thing we might want to do is just dispense with that nonsense about him being sinless, right? To refer to this woman as a dog is not just insulting, it's probably a first century ethnic slur. What could be more sinful thing to say than this? But for me, at least, the teachings and doctrines of the church are most useful not when I just dissect them rationally, but when I look at the world through them. And they can be most provocative and illuminating when holding on to a doctrine means holding on to a contradiction, like the paradox embedded in a Zen koan that a monk keeps muttering. And here's what happens, or what begins to happen, as I trust that If the church passed down this notion that Jesus was without sin, there must be a wisdom in doing so. And it gets me to pause for a moment and wonder where the inflection point is where sin intrudes in a conversation or a relationship. I wonder it's not where I think. 
I'll go ahead and confess another sin of mine right here, which is that we didn't actually have to read that much of the gospel today. The first 10 verses, that bit about where Jesus says it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles, that's all optional. So I'm sorry, it's my fault if they're out of eggs benedict by the time you get to brunch. (laughs) But it's startling, right? It's startling that in the exchange Jesus has immediately prior to saying the awful things he says in Matthew 15, he says that we should attend carefully to what comes out of our mouths. But what if Matthew knew exactly what he was doing when he placed these two stories side by side? What if he anticipated, even intended, the dissonance in us as we hear what comes out of Jesus' mouth a little bit later that same day? And and what if the conversation between Jesus and a woman with a demon-possessed daughter is holy, not because the people who engage in it somehow floated free of the prejudices and tribalism that still shape the way you and I see this world today, but because the people engaged in this conversation stayed engaged until a hairline crack opened up in that prejudice and tribalism in both the rabbi and the woman. The Canaanite woman, of course, is one of the great heroes of the Bible, in my opinion. But we can assume too quickly that her virtue is in the way that she stands toe-to-toe with Jesus and refuses to accept his assessment of things. That's not really what happens, though, is it? It's kind of the opposite. She comes as a person who desperately needs for her daughter to be healed. She comes begging for mercy and will relinquish ego, pride, maybe even her identity if it means her girl might be delivered from her demons. We should also be careful about making the woman too meek. If some guru calls my daughter a dog, I'm not going to encourage her to wait patiently at his feet a little bit longer unless she's gathering herself to give him a piece of her mind, possibly with the back of her hand. Meek acceptance isn't her strategy either. What stuns me about her most is that she stays present, attentive, and open with the person who's just insulted her because he might be the one who possesses what her life most needs in that moment. Is this something you know how to do? If it is, how do you do it? How can you possibly stay open to this possibility that there's more to the person who's just humiliated you than cruelty, even if he has something you or someone you love desperately needs? That very capacity... This woman's capacity in particular, Jesus tells us, is the apex of the mysterious thing called faith he roamed Palestine in search of. Well, and what about supposedly sinless Jesus? Well, it's true that there are many stories and lots of traditions of mystics whose teaching involves saying or doing something that initially appears offensive, maybe even cruel, to make a point. I guess it's not impossible that Jesus was intentionally bringing into view these sinful structures and bigotries that this Canaanite woman lived under every single day of her life. It's only in their shadow that he holds her up to his disciples and to us as a person of great faith, as one who sets aside ego and self to stay alert to the possibility of grace in this moment of crisis. But then again, What if Jesus really had been shaped by a world with a certain disposition 
toward women and Canaanites. Remember that he has been working toward a realignment within the religion he loves. All those holiness codes and practices, they, they had their uses, and it's clear that Jesus loved them deeply. But they could also go awry. If we believe that a certain form, in a certain form of purity, we will probably distance and protect ourselves from those we deem impure. We'll probably also attempt to deny and distance ourselves from what we think is imperfect and impure within ourselves. I try to keep those films of my greatest failures stowed deep in the attic, but they still come out from time to time, don't yours? So what if what Jesus' life shows us is not that he had a mind that was completely protected from impure thoughts shaped by what's least good and godly in the world, but rather that he could be so unprotective of his identity, so attentive to the person in front of him, that in him the old patterns might actually begin to change? What if all the holiest moments are not when pure words or actions proceed from some uncontaminated heart or history, but when a soul or a story manages to let even something it believes to be central to its identity go if attention to the unfolding present requires it? Put another way, what if goodness has less to do with staying strong and pure than with staying open to actually being changed? In the end, faith here looks like a kind of clear attention, a truthful way of seeing the world as it is or the person in front of us for who they are. These really can change everything, beginning with us. Peter Matheson once wrote, the physicist seeks to understand reality while the mystic is trained to experience it directly. Both agree that the human mechanisms of perception, stunted as they are by screens of social training, give a very limited picture of existence. Maybe what the miracle that happened between Jesus and a Canaanite mother one day simply that the screens that should have kept two people from seeing each other fell away. and Each of them was changed by what they saw in the other. Moreover, we're told that something shifted in the way things are even more deeply because of their faith. But the story ends not with the rabbi and the woman becoming unlikely friends, but off down the street in a room. Neither of them happens to be standing in at the time a room where a girl, thanks to one mother's fierce and egoless and clear-eyed faith, is relieved of her demons and lives. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.